when your life is upturned, it's not always easy to see clearly, is it? Over the past few years, I've spent a bit of time uh, with people in pain, where life's not turned out the way they'd hoped, and I've seen them describe themselves and others and their circumstances in ways that don't match what those outside those circumstances see. Tragedy, pain and distress can distort our vision. Misunderstandings become conflicts. Conflicts become legal action. Legal action becomes an irreparable loss of relationship. You and I uh, live and learn together in a community that speaks often and loudly about the sovereignty of God, that our God is Lord of all the universe, that nothing happens outside of his control and nothing or no one can derail his purpose. And yet for each of us too, the batterings of life, serious health concerns, the breakdown of relationships, hard decisions made by others, can distort our vision. We cannot see the hand of God in this. We cannot see how this series of events actually furthers the mission of God and his gospel. And it's, it's not just personal circumstances which can obscure God's good hand governing the universe and leading all things to the end that he's intended, an end that is always very, very good. When the world around us looks chaotic, when opposition to God and his purposes seems to flourish and faithfulness is despised and might even seem to be to our disadvantage, it's hard to see what God is doing. When criminal activity is rewarded, when there are mass shootings every week, when inflation is skyrocketing and we cannot afford the weekly shop, when homelessness is on the increase, Tensions between nations make us fearful. When lies about human identity and the goodness of the gospel are championed and enshrined into law, when the king's coronation is decried as out of touch with today's anti-religious Britain. In short, when the fabric seems to be unravelling, and that's before we even get to natural disasters like floods, hurricanes, bushfires and the rest, what are we to make of the promises of God and the purpose of God? Chaos and disturbance are operating at both levels in our world and even those seeking to be faithful can find themselves wrong-footed, can't we? But because the Bible is so honest and realistic about human life in the world and the real serious challenges to faithfulness, we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible addresses these issues directly. For if your newsfeed makes you wonder what on earth is going on in our world and where is God in all of this, the, the Bible knows times just like that. Consider the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges had just recounted for us the dreadful incident with the Levite and his concubine, the war between Benjamin and the other tribes of Israel, the forceful provision of wives for the veterans of that war. 
a breakdown in the rule of law and an every man and woman for themselves way of life that ratcheted up the fear and anxiety of most people. It was a mess. It was chaos and anarchy. A world where there were as many authorities as there were people, where there was no accountability, where everyday lives were upturned again and again and again. And then, to make matters worse, the famine came. That's the context of the Book of Ruth. That little book nestled between Judges and 1 Samuel in our English Bible, it's not just a timeless love story. It's the word of God to us. The story is told for a purpose. The events it records are true. They really happened. But we are told about them not simply to fill in some of the blanks of history for us, but to point us to a truth that we need to know in the midst of that history. A truth that will lead us inexorably, inevitably to Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. The Jews used to read this story during the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the Harvest. It was a powerful reminder to them of God's provision. And it, is something, it has something very important to say to us today in our world in the midst of our own version of chaos and turmoil. The ancient question, where is God in all of this, is never very far from the surface in the book of Ruth. So let me read to you the first chapter, the first act in the story of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "'Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord grant to you to find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons... Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth, Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, 
and your God, my God. Where you die, will I, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Right from the start, clues are being dropped all over the place that this is not a cute little story about two women or about, as we'll find out later, one of those women and a, and a somewhat wealthy man in a harvest field. It's not Old Testament Mills and Boone. There's something else going on. And we who read this chapter are invited to ponder just what that is. If you're an Old Testament Jew, reading this book for the first time and not knowing the ending, there are quite a few things that would make you sit up and take notice. The first is where this action takes place, in Bethlehem. And we're used to associating Bethlehem with King David and the birth of Jesus centuries later, but none of that had happened yet. In the time of Ruth, Bethlehem was just a sleepy little town about 10 kilometres south of the great Canaanite city of Jerusalem. Its name literally means the house of bread, Bethlehem. And there's the first strange thing that raises the question of what exactly is going on. You see, there's a famine in the house of bread. Where is God in all of this? The second strange thing is the man who, for just a moment, is at the centre of the action. His name is Elimelech. Elimelech, my God is king. There is no food in the house of bread, and a courtier of the king must leave there in order to survive. What on earth is going on? Where is God in all of this? The third thing we notice, not really all that strange, is that this man... Elimelech decides to leave home and travel to a place where there was bread. Others had done that before. Of course, Abraham had gone down to Egypt when there was a famine in the land in Genesis 12. And while there, his wife Sarai attracted the attention of the Pharaoh. Later, when there was another famine, Isaac had gone to Gerar, the land of Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Genesis 26. And he settled there making the same mistake with his wife, Rebecca, that Abraham had made years earlier with Sarai. But most significant of all, Jacob and his family had gone to Egypt in Genesis 46, in the wake of a famine in the Promised Land. And there in Egypt, God blessed Jacob and his family. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, as Exodus 1 tells us. You see, in each of these visits, God had a purpose. He moved his plan forward and did something extraordinary. As we read Ruth 1, should we be prepared for God to do that again? To do something extraordinary 
that would push us even closer to that great realisation of his purpose for his people and for the entire universe. But this time there is an added complication, and that's the fourth unusual thing we should notice. For consider where this man, Elimelech, goes when the famine strikes the house of bread. He takes his wife and his two sons, most likely teenagers at this point, to Moab. Moab, of all places. That's extraordinary because the people of Moab had established themselves as the enemies of God's people, so much so that they'd been cursed by God because of it. Hear what God said in Deuteronomy 23. The Ammonite, no Ammonite or Moabite, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all the days, all your days forever. These are the very people who refused to give the children of Israel bread when they were travelling in the wilderness. These are the people that God had cursed as a result. And it's to these people that Elimelech goes when the house of bread is empty. And as verse 2 makes clear, they remained there. Four things right at the start of the action alert us that there's more going on than meets the eye. It all begins in Bethlehem, the house of bread. The man at the centre of the action, for just a short time really, bears the name, my God is king. The pattern of travelling to another land in the face of the famine is being repeated, but this time... The man goes to Moab, to those who refused to help the Hebrews in the past and who'd been cursed by God because of it. Something more is going on. And it centres around the question, where is God in all of this? The visit to Moab uh, might have seemed vindicated at first. They found a place to stay and they stayed. They put down roots in a foreign land. It was not a short visit. They stayed there, we learn in verse 4, for 10 years. But whatever they hoped and experienced at first, this stay proves to be an unremitting disaster. And with each blow, we can expect that Naomi kept asking, where is God in all of this? And the answer seemed very far from here. Before the story has really even got started, Elimelech, my God, is king, dies. He dies and is buried in a foreign land. And not just any foreign land, in the land of the Moabites. And so from this point on, the story becomes the story of his wife, Naomi. Stranded in a foreign land, a widow with two sons, she was in a very vulnerable position. How could she live and provide for her grieving family in a land of foreigners? And yet she remains there. She doesn't go home to Bethlehem. She stays long enough for her two boys to marry Moabite women, despite all that the law had said about intermarrying with those people. They bound themselves into a land and culture that stood in open defiance to the living God, 
where people were worshipping their own idols. And then the losses begin to cascade upon Naomi. The widow lost both of her sons in rapid succession. We don't know the details. We don't know how long either of them were married, but we do know that they both died without children. And suddenly this land that had promised life, that's why they went there in the first place, seemed to have given her nothing but death. Outside of the promised land, without a husband, without her sons, everything she'd brought with her was gone. So where is God in all of this? You see, it seems as if the turmoil and chaos and heartache of the period of the judges is concentrated in the life experience of this one Israelite woman. And to make matters worse, she hears that the famine has come to an end in Israel. There is food again in the house of bread, while she is stranded, having lost everything in a foreign land. So it's time to return. Like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, she lost everything and there was only one place to go now, home. At some point along the way, Naomi stopped in her tracks. We don't know why. Perhaps she realised that these two girls were making precisely the same mistake she'd made ten years before. They were leaving their home, all their family and connections and heading into an uncertain future. And her reasoning is very simple. What prospects for marriage and family and security were there for two Moabite women in Israel? And Naomi herself wouldn't be any help. She had no husband and no realistic prospect of more sons. So if they came with her, they would be as vulnerable as she was, perhaps even more so. Why should three share the grief of one? These are the first words we hear Naomi, uh, from Naomi in this story, her urging of her foreign daughters-in-law to return to their homes. And they both initially refuse to leave her, but then she tries again. And one of them, Orpah, appears to grasp the reality of the situation and she goes back. But there was always more involved in this decision than just where to live. That much is clear when Naomi describes what Orpah has done in her last attempt to get Ruth to go back to. See, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Both girls were faced with a decision about whom they will serve. And Naomi's insistent urging forces a division between them. Orpah chooses Moab. She chooses her family but most significantly, she chooses the gods of Moab. Ruth, on the other hand, chooses to continue on with Naomi, to face life alone and die in Israel if need be, but most importantly, to serve the Lord. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. See, perhaps she'd made that decision long before, before the journey back had even begun. Did you notice she uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the Lord. He is and will be her God, not just Naomi's God, not just Marlon's God, but her God. That's the fundamental choice she's made. And whether that choice was made then or long before, it will change everything that happens from now on. 
But, and here's the point, Naomi is oblivious to all of this. She just gave up trying to persuade her. And in the midst of the exchanges with the two girls, Naomi had made clear how she saw things. See it there in verse 13? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It had been one disaster after another, and it was the Lord who has done this to her. That's all she could see. And she was missing so much. So when she arrives back in Bethlehem, when the two of them have returned, and there's such a commotion because Naomi has been gone so long, and because her grief has etched itself on her face and her life, she even suggests that she's lost her name. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? There's nothing good in any of this, she says. Nothing at all. I've lost everything. The Lord is against me. He took it all away. He has testified against me. He's brought calamity after calamity upon me. And she doesn't see what is right in front of her. She can't see it. Her grief has blinded her to it. For you see, in and through this series of tragedies that have encircled her, God has still been at work, moving all things along in the direction he has planned. She might not see it. It might for a while be hidden from her. But understand, see, notice that through all of this, the Lord has brought to Bethlehem the ancestress of the Christ. He has brought the world one step closer to that day when Ruth's descendant will be acclaimed by every tongue as Lord. God brought them back. And Naomi, precisely in the midst of this tragedy and grief, had a part to play in that, even though she didn't see it even though her life made no sense to her apart from her reckoning that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There have been many days like that since. Days in which the hand of God is hidden, though not absent. And you may have experienced one of them or walked with a friend through one of them. You may have uttered or heard words strikingly like those of Naomi in this early part of the story, everything is gone. He took it all away. The hand of the Lord is against me. No day was more like that than the day when the sky turned black and the rocks were split. The cry of abandonment was heard from the cross and the centurion exclaimed, truly this man was the son of God. Everything seemed lost. The disciples would cower in a locked room, afraid that it was all over and they would be next. But from the vantage point of the resurrection three days later, we know that more was going on. God's purpose was not unravelling, it was unfolding. And this is the great anchor of our hope. Even in the midst of the turmoil, when we can make no sense of things. There's no shying away from the fact that Naomi was blinded by her grief. She was just unable to see what the Lord was doing at that moment. She could not even see Ruth in front of her. I came back empty. But that's a real experience, isn't it? 
It's an experience that we can so easily find ourselves in. How could God let this happen? How could he let it go so black? Friends, the first message of the book of Ruth is that God is involved even when it does not seem all that obvious. God's purpose triumphs in the dark days as well as on the bright ones. There might not have been a king in Israel and everyone might have been doing what was right in his own eyes. But God was intimately involved to bring about his purposes in the dark days of the judges. Ruth the Moabitess, the ancestress of the Christ, in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest, who'd have thought it? The world might have shaken and the sky gone black. The eerie cry from the condemned man and the extraordinary confession from the soldier who'd seen it all before and God was intimately involved in the dark day of the cross. Death swallowed up by death and the penalty of sin exhausted. Who'd have thought it? And God is intimately involved in the lives of all his people right up to the end. So don't let the turmoil and the chaos, the grief and despair that will inevitably come on each one of us at one time or another, whether personal or international, blind you from the fact that God is seeing his purpose through right to the end. Seeing clearly means recognising the hand of God even when it's hidden. And remembering that the God whose hand it is, is good. He has not given up and he has not been distracted. You might not see the good that he intends, but you can be sure that he intends it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we don't know when... The circumstances of our lives will crowd upon us in such a way that it is hard for us to see. And some of us might be at that point right now. We ask, Father, that you might grant us such confidence, having seen what you did at the time of the judges, that you are still at work and your purpose is good and everything is heading towards that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to your everlasting glory. Thank you for that. Help us, we pray, in our weakness, for Jesus' sake. Amen.